Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? Good, good, good week. I think I may have good news, uh, especially for my wife. Uh, I think I have someone who wants to buy my Vespa that I'm selling, but an interesting person in that, my chiropractor, of all the people I thought who would buy my Vespa, I wasn't thinking my 70-year-old French chiropractor. So, But uh, he's, he looks like he's going to buy it. So it could, be, right. could be a really you know, rewarding week that way. <laughs> Bike off my hands, a little more money in the bank. So how about you? How are things? No scooters you're selling or anything like that? I'm, I've got nothing like that for sale. Might be a good way to take this podcast, though. We could kind of do some you know, want ad sort of things. And I, I certainly would like to clear out the garage. Have our, have our listeners get involved. We could have stuff all across the country kind of, you know, bartered back and forth. So. Yeah. Get some auctions going. Yeah. All right. Next season. <laughs> season three coming soon. Well, we're going to lead off this week by talking about what I think is undoubtedly the most significant story of the week. Uh, the conviction of Derek Chauvin and the AP story reporting on that opened former Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin was convicted Tuesday of murder and manslaughter for pinning George Floyd to the pavement with his knee on the black man's neck in a case that triggered worldwide protests, violence, and a furious reexamination of racism and policing in the U.S. Uh, further down in the story are some numbers that put the story in a broader context. It's unusual for police officers to be prosecuted for killing someone on the job, and convictions are extraordinarily rare. Out of the thousands of deadly police shootings in the U.S. since 2005, fewer than 140 officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter, according to data maintained by Phil Stinson, a criminologist at Bowling Green State University. Before Tuesday, only seven were convicted of murder. And it says juries often give police officers the benefit of the doubt when they claim they had to make split-second life-or-death decisions. But that was not an argument Chauvin could easily make. Yeah, horrible, horrible uh, tape, nine and a half minutes that I think from every commentary I heard uh, was a little bit of an oddity for a murder case where you saw the uh, victim, uh, in this case, uh, go from being alive to being dead. I, I thought that uh, the, the best commentary I heard was by Fox News legal contributor Leo Terrell, who's a civil rights attorney, who I think... Uh, in a, in a very responsible way, said that 98, 99% of the police officers that are out there do a wonderful job, uh, want to serve and keep the peace. Uh, and you do have bad apples and uh, you do have people in particular situations um, who, who commit, you know, heinous crimes, like I think the one that was committed here by Chauvin. And I think that, um, you know, justice was served, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, everything here on out in terms of uh, his treatment will, uh, the sentencing, et cetera, uh, will, will not be shaped uh, by the pressures uh, from outside, but pre- uh, shaped by a fair and measured judgment on, on what happened and, and, and what type of time he should serve uh, for committing the crime. Yeah. I mean, there's several different directions this is going to go from here. And one of them you've already mentioned, which is the rest of the criminal process, including sentencing, and then also appeals. And then you also have the other three officers who were involved who were set to be tried in August. But the, the appeal is the one that may be most fraught with the possibility of, of, of difficulties down the road. Uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters made some very strong remarks to a crowd 
in the lead up to the jury deliberations. And the trial judge, although he didn't grant a mistrial, which is what the defense attorney was asking for, nevertheless said that she may have given you, speaking of the defense attorney, something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. So he was, he was not happy that political leaders were weighing in at that stage in the process. President Biden made remarks, but he, he was very careful that he didn't make his remarks until after the jury was already sequestered and was in the middle of their deliberations. I mean, it seems like the reverse a little bit of the sentiments of, of Abraham Lincoln in his Lyceum address, where he talks about uh, mobs taking justice into their own hands and the initial crime that was committed and, and, and perhaps deserving uh, of a penalty, but the responsibility that statesmen have to, to soothe and, and to cool uh, those sentiments by pointing to the rule of law and reason rather than to excite them. And uh, that seems to be uh, not, not the way that a lot of people go about doing their business uh, politically these days. The other branch of this is uh, a renewed effort to pass what's called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, it was approved last year by the House and again earlier this year by the House, but it hasn't been approved by the Senate. Susan Crabtree at Real Clear Politics wrote about the, the politics here. So while recent polls show that most Americans back police reforms of some kind, how that support translates to specific Washington mandates is more difficult to discern. Over the last year, there's been plenty of bipartisan support in Congress for banning chokeholds and requiring data collection on police encounters, as well as channeling more funds to community-based policing programs and more police training. But that comedy falls apart when it comes to a major sticking point in the George Floyd justice and policing bill, rolling back qualified immunity protections for law enforcement. And so she continues, it's, it's a big change in legal doctrine and Supreme Court precedent that would make it easier to pursue claims of police misconduct in court. The Democrat-controlled House passed the sweeping reform bill with its new limits on immunity in early March, but the measure is stuck in the 50-50 Senate, where most measures need a 60-vote threshold to break a filibuster and pass. And so we'll see if they can get 60 votes, probably not for the present bill, but would they be willing to negotiate a bill? Of course, we remember that Tim Scott had put together a reform bill last summer that, that might've gathered a majority support had there been willing, a willingness to compromise. Yeah, I think this is one of those areas, once again, that uh, if there's a will, there's definitely a way. There are some things that you see in, in both the Scott legislation proposed last year and some of this newer legislation where there's overlap there. So if, if we could move things in the right direction, even if it may be more incremental than people would want, uh, but get 65, 70 votes, I think that would be a, a good shot in the arm for uh, moving forward on this front. Well, with that, let's turn to our required reading, Dave, as we wrap up Democracy in America. Yeah, so we're now at the end of our reading of Democracy in America. Our plan is to go through the last three chapters of the last part of volume two, where he introduces the kind of despotism that democratic nations have to fear, then talks about those measures uh, that, that may safeguard us against despotism, uh, and then gives his conclusion on the whole matter. Uh, we'll spend this week uh, on finishing the book. And then next week, we'll have a, a special episode that we'll say more about later on in which we look at the road forward here uh, in kind of a Tocquevillian fashion. What's the remedy given where we stand in 2021? So the beginning of chapter six, what kind of despotism democratic nations have to fear will come as no surprise to people who've been with us these last 14 or 15 weeks. Uh, he opens the chapter by saying, during my stay in the United States, I had remarked that a democratic social state like that of the Americans could singularly facilitate the establishment of despotism. 
So what do we have to fear? Despotism. He then says upon his return to Europe and France, he'd seen how many of the princes, uh, many of the sovereigns in Europe uh, were likewise moving in the direction of despotism. And he concludes writing, Christian nations would perhaps in the end come under an oppression similar to that which formerly weighed on several of the peoples of antiquity. So this is not something particular to the United States, although despotism as it forms in the United States uh, will have its own variant as it will in France. Uh, but the question is, can anything be done? Well, in order to answer it as to whether or not anything can be done, you have to know what you're up against. And here he goes into the nature of democratic despotism as opposed to older forms of despotism. What makes democratic despotism unique uh, and novel is how extensive it is and how mild it is. So it covers most everything and it does so in a mild way. Uh, it's despotic, more like a schoolmaster than a tyrant. Which brings us to a famous, famous passage that I always love to read to my classes in describing why read Tocqueville's Democracy in America and does this apply to anything you see today? It's a rather long um, selection. Uh, top of page 663 in the Mansfield translation, he first begins by talking about the people, we the people. So remember here, he's talking in the 1830s, just 50, 60 years after Jefferson had penned the Declaration of Independence. And he writes, I want to imagine with what new features despotism could be produced in the world. I see an innumerable crowd of like and equal men who revolve on themselves without repose, procuring the small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. Each of them, withdrawn and apart, is like a stranger to the destiny of all the others. His children and his particular friends form the whole human species for him. As for dwelling with his fellow citizens, he is beside them, but he does not see them. He touches them and does not feel them. He exists only in himself, and for himself alone, and if a family still remains for him, one can at least say that he no longer has a native country. A very, very scary description of what happens to democratic man. He's a man without a country, a man without a place, a man who is surrounded by other human beings, but lacks uh, that real communion that allows human societies to flourish. So who is responsible for this? And what about the sovereign government? What about the regime? Who is working to make this man like this? Next paragraph, he writes, above these an immense tutelary power is elevated, which alone takes charge of assuring their enjoyments and watching over their fate. It is absolute, detailed, regular, far-seeing, and mild. It will resemble paternal power if, like that, it had for its object to prepare men for manhood. But on the contrary, it seeks only to keep them fixed irrevocably in childhood. It likes citizens to enjoy themselves provided that they think only of enjoying themselves. It willingly works for their happiness, but it wants to be the unique arbiter an agent of that. It provides for their security, foresees and secures their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their principal affairs, directs their industry, regulates their estates, divides their inheritances. 
can it not take away from them entirely the trouble of thinking and the pain of living? Perhaps the most memorable paragraph in all of Democracy in America, and, and perhaps the most impressive when we relay what Tocqueville is suggesting here to modern life, contemporary existence, how we or many Americans live in the year 2021. What do you make uh, of these paragraphs, uh, Matt? What is, is, is this something that is too far afield? Is it dystopian? Or do you think that it's apt uh, in describing the America uh, that might come into being under this democratic despotism? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'd, I'd start by just reiterating a point that we've made a couple of times before. This is not what he would have seen when he visited America. This is not Jacksonian America he's describing. He's describing the trajectory of an idea, the trajectory of a regime that's not visible at that moment, but will come into view in, in the century, two centuries that, that are ahead. And I think by the time we get to today, we, we do have many reference points for this. Whenever I teach the Tocqueville, and I'm teaching this you know, as, as part of a study of Jacksonian America, as we're working chronologically from the colonial period to the Civil War, I get to this and students all of a sudden feel like they've left the 1830s and we're talking about present day. All of a sudden they have, they have immediate reference points for this. They, they know what it's like to be under paternalistic authority. Now they know what it's like to, to feel the burden of, of constant regulation and being told this and that and not that and this thing. And, and the idea of a government that defines pleasures for you, wants you to be happy, but happy on its terms and, and, it, and its terms only. Yeah, I think it also captures the life of, of many an 18 to 23-year-old. I'm fond of my first or second class of my introduction to political philosophy classes, asking my classes filled with individuals who are just bubbling that they're all on their own and, and happy to be free of, of their parents and they're in college. And I ask them, are, are you free? And to a person, they say, oh, of course I'm free. I said, well, what do you mean by freedom and being free? Were you free not to come to college? And first thing you hear is, well, you have to go to college. Well, why do you have to go to college? Well, everyone goes to college. And then I say, well, if, what if you don't go to college? What if you decided that you wanted to go to Europe instead of college? Well, you couldn't do that because if you did that, you'd be doing something different from everyone else. And I said, is, is that the way of life that you just check off the boxes that are given to you? that you do this. And then the next thing after that is to do X, Y, and Z right until the end. And it opens up to them this kind of this exercise where people very much think they're free, but when they think about, are they truly free to make a choice that's outside the box? Uh, most of them begin to reconsider. And on this point, Matt, it made me think of this, this questionable, who's, who's tutoring the people to be this way and, and what our responsibility is as, as educators and whether or not we as educators, specifically in higher education, uh, are doing a good job of training individuals how to think for themselves, how to exercise their free will. Tocqueville writes, every day this force renders the employment of free will less useful and more rare. It confines the action of the will in a smaller space and little by little steals the very use of free will from each citizen. And it's an excellent, excellent book uh, for those in our audience uh, looking for a, a read on elite education in the United States. 
I don't know if I'm going to get his last name correctly, but his name is William Derisowitz, and the book is titled Excellent Sheep. It was written in 2015. And I just want to read the last two paragraphs from chapter one of the book titled The Students, where he's described all of these students who are in Yale or in these elite institutions. He writes, what then finally is it all for? Our glittering system of elite higher education, students kill themselves getting into, parents kill themselves to pay for it, and always for the opportunities it, open up, it opens up. But what of all the opportunities it closes down? Not for any practical reason, but just because of how it smothers you with expectations. How can I become a teacher or a minister or a carpenter? Wouldn't that be a waste of my fancy education? What would my parents think? What would my friends think? How would I face classmates at our 20th reunion when they're all rich doctors or important people in New York? And the question that exists behind them all, isn't this beneath me? So an entire world of possibility, possibilities shuts and you miss your true calling. That is, if you even have an inkling what your calling is. You cannot say to a Yaley, find your passion. Most of us do not know how. It is indeed reasonable to say, as many students have, that you might as well go to Wall Street, make a lot of money, if you can't think of anything better to do. What is not reasonable is that we have constructed an educational system that produces highly intelligent, accomplished 22-year-olds who have no idea what they want to do with their lives, no sense of purpose, and what is worse, no understanding of how to go about finding one. Who can follow an existing path, but don't have the imagination or the courage or the inner freedom to invent their own? Tocqueville writing in the late 1830s, right? An admissions officer from Yale writing 180 years later. It's just it's a remarkable tie between these two sets of paragraphs. Yeah. And you think about this at this elite level, right? This is, you know, we think about the, the sheep being the, the average person in flyover America. That's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about the people that are, that are filling elite institutions that are then going to go on to have all the, the fancy jobs and all the rest. You, you look at it and you say, well, I'd like to be oppressed that way get a, a big fancy job on Wall Street and, and a couple of nice houses and a yacht. That sounds like the, the kind of oppression I could go for. Uh, and yet what he's pointing to and what the Tocqueville's pointing us to as well, that, yeah, but if it's just about the material success and the status and all that, what about the human soul? And I think it's one of the things, you know, what, at, at Providence and at King's that we're trying to do is to have students move in a different direction. So they may end up on Wall Street. But hopefully if they're on Wall Street, they're there because they know they want to be on Wall Street and they've got a deliberate purpose in view as they're, as they're moving in that direction. They've asked the important questions. Uh, they've been challenged to reflect as, as you've challenged your students on calling and to think about a life well-lived in the light of, of ultimately uh, the realities of, of, of Christ and, and their calling as those made in the image of God. Yeah, it's interesting here how Tocqueville describes the, the parameters of how people are shaped this way. He'll note, right, that in a democratic age, we are sovereign, right? The people are sovereign and individuals have a certain level of sovereignty. We have a level of choice, but we live in an infrastructure, kind of a moral and intellectual infrastructure in which there is administrative despotism, in which there is kind of the shaping of who we are 
based upon what is expected of us by society. So that so much so that those expectations, that administrative despotism has a kind of political outlet, but it also has kind of a, a societal outlet. It has a, an outlet into our souls where our small affairs, he says, are subjected, uh, are, are, ma are made subject to these forces. Our spirit is extinguished. Our soul is, is enervated. And he uses, interestingly enough, the, the example of a political election. Yes, like getting to choose the college that you go to, you can choose the person that you're voting for every four years up until right the next election, four years thereafter or two years thereafter. So you have this small little uh, reign of freedom that may last a day that is followed by time thereafter where you're doing everything they tell you to do. He says in, in a famous line, a man like this is alternatively the plaything of the sovereign and its masters. Um, on one hand, it's more than kings. On the other, it's less than men. Yeah, I think about in the classic example I've used over the years of this was Mayor Bloomberg when he decided that it was wrong for New York City residents to drink more than 16 ounces of sugary soda back in 2012, 2013, and, and, and pressing really hard that we've got to really restrict those decisions. You know, you go to Coney Island, there's no 32-ounce soda for you. 64 ounce soda, well, you know, whatever, whatever you want to wash down those, those big hot dogs, you're not having that. Uh, and yet, right, every, every four years, you got to vote on whether you're going to have Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, now he changed the city charters, so we can get a third term. Uh, so, you know, he, he knew how to manipulate elections as well. But, but there's this really odd dynamic. You're not responsible enough to decide how big a soda to drink, but you are responsible enough to choose the person who's going to decide if you can drink a soda. No, it's interesting. I, when you mentioned that story, uh, my son, Jack, we were driving in the car the other week and he said, mommy, why did you vote for President Blueberry? And I'm like, what is he talking about, President Blueberry? And like, why do you like President Blueberry? And then he was really meaning Bloomberg. And he's like, you know, the guy who doesn't like Coke, you know, how could you ever, mom, you know, vote for President Blueberry? He doesn't like, I'm trying to figure out what is he talking about here? And then Bloomberg, not Bloomberg, uh, Blueberry. And um, and Tocqueville says, you know, so I say this to Katie, you know, it, uh, uh, this great concluding thought from Tocqueville on the matter. Uh, he writes, it is in fact difficult to conceive how men who have entirely renounced the habit of directing themselves could succeed at choosing well who would lead them and one who will not make anyone believe that a liberal, energetic, and wise government can ever issue from the suffrage of a people of servants. Well, thank goodness we have not chosen, no matter the billions that he spent, uh, Mayor Bloomberg as our president, but I, I think the, uh, the comment that Tocqueville is trying to make, that here you're given the right to vote, although every single other aspect of your life um, is kind of conditioned in this way or another, you know, why would you give someone the right to vote if, if you're conditioning them on every other front? Yeah, you know, the other aspect of this that he develops is that the way the despotism works isn't so much to make you do X, Y, and Z, it's to prevent you from doing things. You know, we had an interesting example of this just this week with local zoning regulations. So we had a contractor come by and I was asking about different projects we thought about. And, you know, we're not necessarily ready to do tomorrow, but but thinking about in the long run what we might want to do with the house. And one of them was putting a screened in porch off off the back of the house. And he said, well, I'm not sure you can do that because you can't build anything within 20 feet of, of your neighbor's yard. And so I was out there measuring today just to see what that would mean for us. Well, our, our backyard is 55 feet wide and 48 feet deep, not big, right? But we're in town. And so that's the kind of yard you get, but you take 20 feet off in each direction 
you're down to 15 feet wide and you take 20 feet off the back down to 28 feet. So you work out the numbers less than one sixth of our backyard. We actually have control over where we could build something, I guess, a small shed, right? If we wanted to do that. And, and the rest of it, we have to get a variance from the town. Now the town might be very nice and they might grant us the variance, but you see how it works. You've got to appeal. They're going to get to evaluate. Are you the kind of person we want getting a variance? Are you doing the kind of project we think would be nice based upon our, our conception of, of how this town should look or whatever other factors might weigh into that? It's the control that's exercised. Not, not that they're necessarily uh, bad people trying to cause you trouble, but they have power. Right? And, and a certain deference is required in order to have that power be used in a way that would please you as, as the owner presumptively of, of your property. There's this great state called Texas, about <laughs> 1500 miles to the South Southwest. You, you ought to look on a map and, and see whether or not it'd be a place where you could move to. I think you have a wife from that state. don't you? <laughs> We're going to visit the summer. So, okay. All right. No, no pressure, but uh... <laughs> all right. Uh, well, it's chapter seven, the next chapter. And I think Tokyo's great here. What do we do about this? Um, he writes, there's no question of reconstructing an aristocratic society, but of making freedom issue from the bosom of democratic society in which God makes us live. How do we make freedom issue from the bosom of democratic society? So here he, he gives a list. Well, not it's a list, but he goes through some, some things that we've mentioned in the past from covering Tocqueville. One thing that we need to do is attempt to prevent the central power from abusing its agility and force. And how do you do that? do that through secondary bodies, secondary associations that are built uh, of plain citizens. Uh, he says, when plain citizens associate, they can constitute very opulent, very influential, very strong beings, in a word, aristocratic beings. So whether it's a political, industrial, commercial, scientific, or literary association, when human beings come together, they can form a few that is wise, that is confident in its way, and that can kind of form a buffer uh, against the encroachment or exertion uh, from a, a central power. Secondly, democratic societies cannot do without the freedom of the press. Third, you need a judicial power that's occupied with a particular interest and that's willing to kind of uh, uh, make a good judgment on the uh, basis of, of the particular case. Fourth, democratic peoples need forms, manners, uh, uh, things that you do that are, that are kind of the norms within uh, any given arena of life. But then I think the one that stuck out to me the most, Matt, in terms of things that we need to do to guard against democratic despotism was a really great great paragraph. And I think it may, may be his most important admonition in the whole group of, of thoughts here. Quote, it is therefore above all in the democratic times we are in that the true friends of freedom and human greatness must constantly remain on their feet and ready to prevent the social power from lightly sacrificing the particular rights of some individuals to the general execution of its designs. In these times, there is no citizen so obscure that it is not very dangerous to allow him to be oppressed, nor are there individual rights of so little importance that one can deliver them with impunity to arbitrariness. Every person matters. Every injustice matters. And if you let it go because that person's not important, uh, if you let uh, the, that right go because, well, that's not an important right, then you're going down the wrong path. And it's really kind of a call, Matt, for all of us 
right? To, to come to the defense of one another, right? To see that individual who is in need uh, and to recognize that it's not just justice for me, justice for me is going to be better secured by, by really trying to have justice for all. And I think it's kind of, it's a neat, a neat aspect of Tocqueville that he, he reemphasizes uh, this part of the project. Yeah, the fundamental weakness of democratic politics is that we are isolated, weak individuals, and we are confronted by a powerful centralized government. And so to preserve freedom in a context like that, we need to come together. We need to group together in, in ways that aren't natural to democratic society. We need to be very careful to guard the forms, the, the forms of constitutions, the forms of the rule of law, the forms of individual rights, and to protect the divisions that we have of authority between national governments and state governments and state governments and local governments. Now, it's interesting, as he lays this out, you know, we could kind of organize your principles there under a few different headings. What he's really giving us is a pathway back to the American founding. Although the majority principle is the central principle for making political decisions, it's a constrained majority. And we have the protection of natural rights. We have the foundation of, of the consent of the governed. And we have the central importance of a divided government that protects separation of powers, both vertically and horizontally. So the antidotes for the democratic politics and the dangers of freedom he's describing are actually indigenous to the American political project. If we can recover the republicanism of the American founding, we have a way of making a majoritarian society that's emerging, this democratic society emerging in the 1830s, just and good and something that we can welcome rather than something that we should fear. It's interesting you mentioned the founding there because one of his last bits of commentary is that at the end of the day, we also need to make more great men, right? We need great men and women who come to the fore and much like the founders help establish uh, these things as norms that are really outside of the box. And that, that's not really the norm for the powerful. It's not the norm uh, for uh, the insider right, to have made the case for equality, to be a true friend of justice and, and so on. But that's a unique thing about America when it's at its best, right? The outsider looks at what the insider is doing and says, we need to correct this. We need to reform this. We need to make this better uh, so that all can benefit uh, from the reform, not just my person, not just my tribe, not just my party. So I think it's a reminder to us, Matt, that you know, it can't be something where I just want to protect conservatives, or I just want to protect uh, Republicans, that, that any abuse against anyone, even if they're not in your political party, even if they're not of your faith, is an abuse that you, that you ought to condemn and, and want um, to remedy. All right, so where do we end? Chapter eight, his general view of the subject. He closes by saying that everything that he described here is a new society that is only being born. And if you haven't caught this up at this point, you realize that Tocqueville is, is very adamant in his argument against uniformity. He writes, the spectacle of universal uniformity saddens me. And yet there may be something more to it at a metaphysical or religious level. There may be something more to it from the standpoint of God's providence. And I always found uh, this, this last comment of the work really, really interesting. This is at the bottom of page 674, top of page 675. And here you'll note, 
the words great and greatness appear in these last chapters over and over and over again. And, and Tocqueville, as uh, uh, Professor Mansfield from Harvard has said, uh, suggests here that there's some tie there to securing liberty and human greatness well expressed. And, and Tocqueville says, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with sadness because a world that was once filled with great men is disappearing. People now appear to be like one another. They resemble one another. And there's been this kind of flattening of souls. Uh, but it's interesting, Matt, he doesn't have a response that that's Nietzschean that kind of calls for, okay, supermen to come forward and, and to bring about a revaluation of society. He writes at the bottom of 674, it is natural to believe that what most satisfies the regard of this creator and preserver of men is not the singular prosperity of some, but the greater well-being of all. What seems to me decadence is therefore progress in his eyes. What wounds me is agreeable to him. Equality is perhaps less elevated, but it is more just and its justice makes for its greatness and its beauty. What a, what a beautiful set of lines in which he, he recognizes what is lost in greatness as you move from an aristocratic to a democratic age, but then asks, is this providential? Much like at the beginning of the book, is this what God wants? And if this is what God wants, we have a just God, and there must be some justice in democratic equality. And that justice must make it great, must make it beautiful. Yeah, it's a remarkable act of submission to God's overall understanding of the world, to God's order, and, and from one who, who admits that there's things that he admires in the world that's passing away, and yet is looking for things to admire in the world that's coming into being. As this world of equality emerges, he's looking for that thing that, that is good and that is new, that can be celebrated even as he mourns what's passing away. And the best way I've heard Tocqueville described, I forget who, who said this exactly, but some, someone, maybe it was Pierre Manette, said that you know, what, what Tocqueville is, is a chastened liberal. Right? He's someone open to the promise uh, of a liberal democratic society, but he's chastened. He's, he's honest enough to see that there are great dangers here. And, and the greatest danger right, is that this thing could lead us toward freedom, but it also might lead us toward servitude. Right? It could lead us, he writes, toward enlightenment or barbarism, to prosperity or misery. So there are these alternatives that are present there, and there is a great responsibility that we have as thinkers, that we have as teachers, that we have as statesmen to, to not try to go back to a world that can never be recreated, but to work within the world we have and to direct it in its better direction. I think one of the questions that we can be thinking about for next week as we look forward is to what degree have that, has that range of options narrowed in the intervening years? Looking out in the horizons are very wide because democracy is just emerging. It's developed to a certain degree in America. It's coming to Europe, but there's lots of unanswered questions. And now we're two centuries down the road. Democracy is, is more deeply embedded in American society and European society, and now beyond that to the rest of the world. And are some of these decisions being made? Have they been made? And to what degree are we still as free to choose the better course 
that de Tocqueville lays out for us in the 1830s, to what degree is that still a viable option and available to us today? So for the adjacent reading for this week, I just want to quickly touch upon Tocqueville's other major work titled The Old Regime and the French Revolution that he writes some 15 to 20 years after Democracy in America. And he's writing here on 18th century French history. And his basic argument is that the French Revolution or French revolutionaries attempted to to wipe uh, off the face of the earth uh, all of the manners, all of the norms, all the customs of the old regime. But what in fact happens after the French Revolution is they reestablish them. They reestablish the thing that they're, they're trying to annihilate. And Tocqueville's reminding his audience in 1850 that liberty is something that needs to be defended. And uh, you can think that you're making the greatest case or, or doing the greatest benefit uh, for your fellow man uh, by trying to overwhelm the forces of the past but be careful that you don't establish right, a new despotic or absolutist government that really works on the very same premises of the one that you were trying uh, to, to do away with. And he has this great line, and, and I want to read the line near the end of his preface of, of his work and then relate it to, I think, what we're trying to suggest uh, about America and Americans and, and the way forward. He writes in the negative sense that a man's admiration of absolute government is proportionate to the contempt he feels for those around him. It's a really great, great, great line. A man's admiration of absolute government is proportionate to the contempt he feels for those around him. You're more likely to embrace absolute government if you hold your fellow citizen, your fellow man in contempt. And I think that the reverse is true as well, right? A man's admiration of free or Republican government is proportionate to the dignity he embraces in those around him. And I think that's what we've been trying to suggest in our coverage of Tocqueville. I think Tocqueville sees that. Uh, He knows it's a hard course to follow, but it's one that we're really going to need to follow uh, if we're going to live uh, or continue to live under Republican government uh, in the United States. That's a great place to leave us as we wrap up in a long study. Thank you, Professor Corbin, for leading us through that over the course of these 15 weeks. So you mentioned a wrap-up episode next time. What do you have for us? Well, we have a special guest. Uh, uh, Many of you who have uh, been our students know that uh, we were both students of Angelo Cotavilla back in Boston University some hard to believe 25 years ago. I think it was 25 years ago this spring, Matt, where I became uh, Dr. Cotavilla, Dr. Angelo Cotavilla's uh, teaching assistant. I, I traded a uh, teaching assistantship with a course I had with, uh, with another graduate student. So I think he traded me beer for the semester uh, for <laughs> switching assistantships. And uh, not only did I get my beer for free, but I got to meet uh, Dr. Cotavilla. And he certainly has had a, a great influence on my life and, and your life. And um, he's going to come on and um, and he's written a piece uh, titled uh, American Exodus for Tablet Magazine that came out right around uh, Easter. And he'll be coming on the show next week and we'll be interviewing him on his thoughts of, of where America is today and where it is going. He'll talk about um, his thesis that we're really moving into a new oligarchic age. So what is what does oligarchy in America look like in the 21st century? 
and what can we do about it? So we'll close off our coverage of Tocqueville uh, with Dr. Cotevilla next week. All right. Well, let's turn to the headlines. And we've had a chance already to talk about a few examples of the kind of thing that the Tocqueville is looking at here with democratic despotism. Um, as we're about to wrap up our second season of the show, I'm mindful of the fact that our first episode last May was entitled Reopening Our Divided States. And we were talking about reopening, obviously, in the COVID context. And here we are, uh, almost a year later, still working on that. Uh, you remember the last time we looked at this issue somewhat closely, President Biden had accused Texas and Mississippi of Neanderthal thinking for lifting their mask mandates at the beginning of March. Uh, at the time of his remarks, Texas had a seven-day average of 116 deaths uh, per day. And now, uh, so six, seven weeks later, it's about half that, 59. And in terms of the overall caseload, it's about 7,000 cases a day at that point. And now it's a little bit under 3,000, so a decline of about 60%. Now you look at the national trends, uh, the caseload was pretty constant over that time, almost identical beginning of March to what it is now. So in that sense, Texas has done much better. On the other hand, with respect to deaths, uh, national average is down about 60% compared to Texas's 50%. So a little bit better for the nation as a whole than Texas in particular. Uh, one thing we haven't had, though, is what Jim Garrity has repeatedly called the maskless Texas apocalypse, right? Tongue in cheek, uh, looking for that about every couple of weeks. He'll, he'll update how we're doing. Do we have the maskless Texas apocalypse? And the answer is no, we still don't. Uh, still hasn't arrived, he, he reports uh, yesterday in his, in his weekday newsletter called The Morning Jolt. And, and there he suggests three reasons why Texas may have avoided this. Number one, the absence of a state mandate doesn't mean that Texans stop wearing masks. Right? The fact that there's no rule requiring you to wear a mask doesn't mean you can't choose to. Number two, warmer weather means people spend more time outdoors, less time in closer quarters with other people. Of course, we saw the same thing last spring into the summer when COVID cases went down dramatically uh, in the early months of the summer in particular, as people got outside and, and got fresh air and were in uh, less confined situations. And then thirdly, that day by day, week by week, more Texans are vaccinated. More than 17 million doses, in fact, have been administered as of this morning. That was yesterday morning. So large swaths of the most vulnerable are now protected. So contrary to expectation, there was no apocalypse in consequence of the lifting of the mask mandate. And you think about this as, as, a, as a counterpoint to the kind of democratic despotism we've been talking about, where we have this sort of top-down instructions and commands. What do you make of Texas's success, which, of course, you've had some part of, Dave, in, in your time there as well? Yes, we were there most of most of March right into Easter. And I think the, the fear was, right, that without paternalism, the sky would fall in. And, and it didn't. And, and the reason why is that people can use their common sense. And I think we even said on the show that there are going to be situations where people want to wear a mask all the time. There are going to be situations where they choose to wear a mask some of the time when they think that it's warranted and, and don't wear it when they're outside or when they don't think it's warranted. The people who weren't going to wear masks, they're not going to wear masks. So there was, there was nothing uh, incredibly detrimental that was going to happen 
by taking away the mandate. Now it may have made life, and I think it did make life difficult, you know, for some people who had to kind of then make decisions based upon not having the mandate in place. And perhaps there were more pressures put on some people. All right, now that the governor said X, we can't do X completely. And that's, um, you had to respond, well, that's not what Governor Abbott said. Governor Abbott said, it's your choice or it's the choice of the business or choice of the school administrator, what's going to happen. But I, I think by and large, it, it just shows you that the cure for our ills in the 21st century is not a stronger and stronger stranglehold for paternalism. Uh, it, it may be a, an encouragement by our leaders uh, to citizenry to think wisely about the choices they make. So this, this branch of it, we see that lifting a paternalistic restriction doesn't lead to bad results, that, that people find ways to, to be productive and to make wise decisions, despite the fact that there's no government mandate telling them what to do one way or the other. Now, on the other hand, uh, or at the same time, we can see that there can be some negative consequences of a paternalistic approach. So really some interesting data coming out as people are examining the perceptions of the vaccine and who wants the vaccine, who doesn't want the vaccine. And if you've been vaccinated, what does that mean? What, what kind of life changes um, can you make? So Philip Klein was writing about this at National Review a couple of weeks ago, and he noted this, this very strange result that there was a, a poll, economist YouGov poll, that of those that had received at least one vaccine shot, 29% thought it was safe for them to travel within the United States. But of those that hadn't received shot and who didn't want to get a shot, half of them thought it was safe. Right? So the people that were vaccine protected had a lower confidence in, in traveling than those who not only hadn't been, but weren't going to get vaccinated according to their own self-report. Now, obviously there's something here about personalities and risk assessment and information perhaps and all the rest. Um, but it's also the case perhaps that some of the messaging that we've been getting from President Biden, from Dr. Fauci, has had some consequences here. All right? if, if, if you're told, get vaccinated, and you can go out and start living a normal life, people say, ah, that sounds very attractive. If you're told, get vaccinated and mask up indefinitely until everybody else has been vaccinated, whenever that's gonna be, if that ever comes to pass, that's not very encouraging, right? Well, if I have to mask up Anyway, what, what, what exactly am I getting from, from, from the vaccine? Now, maybe I have personal reasons why I wanna be protected against COVID and that increases that protection that I've got a reason for that. But, but the, the social aspect of it, if, if, I'm, if I'm not really that worried about it, if I'm not really uh, that concerned about my own health or the, the risks associated with COVID for me, then why am I gonna get the vaccine if I don't get any benefit in terms of my ability to, to go and do the things I would like to do. Uh, and if the message is, yeah, vaccines, great, really important, but also don't change your life after you're vaccinated. Yeah, we were very fortunate. My wife's father, my father-in-law, who's 91 years old in great shape, after getting vaccinated, had his second shot, lives in Massachusetts and decided to get on a plane at 91 and come out to California last week, which was great. Uh, my mother-in-law, who didn't come, uh, was waiting for Anthony Fauci to say that it was okay. Um, and I really, I, mean, I don't mean that tongue in cheek, that she was kind of waiting for, you know, someone to say, okay, after you've been vaccinated and you've waited the time, you can get on an airplane, it's going to be okay. And it, it shows you the power, especially in some parts of the country, 
that a lot of these individuals have on everyday decisions. And it's become just, you know, the basis of, of why people choose what they do. And it was even interesting with my father-in-law that uh, at the end of the stay here, and that there's so much pollen in the air in California right now, he's getting stuffed up and uh, wondered if he had COVID and uh, you spoke to someone back on the East and they said, you better get your COVID test, you know, right now. And of course, you know, he didn't have it, which was great. But it just goes to show you just how much influence that the last year has had on the very small decisions that people make day to day. Well, and it's interesting because we are now at day 93 of the Biden presidency. And you recall among the various other things that were supposed to happen for 100 days, he said, well, would you please wear your mask for 100 days? And of course, that was the reason he was critical of Texas and Mississippi, other states who have lifted those mandates much before we got to 100 days. But that's now coming up, right? This coming Friday. And uh, you would expect as a you know rose garden ceremony, wouldn't it be great? We could all remove our masks. We can move on with our lives. I have a feeling that's not going to happen. We'll, we'll report on this next week, but uh, I've, I've heard of no plans for that kind of a ceremony. I'm sure it'll be something to mark the 100 days. My guess is there won't be any public notice of the fact that we've gotten through our 100 days of masks. Now, interesting, Rand Paul wanted President Biden to go one step further than just removing his mask. He suggested on Wednesday night on Fox News that if you want more people to get vaccinated, what he should do is go on national TV, take his mask off, and then burn it and say, I've had the vaccine. I'm now safe from this plague. If you'll get the vaccine, you can be safe too. Not expecting that to happen, but what do you think of the, the Rand Paul solution to vaccine hesitancy? I don't expect President Biden to burn his mask, but I, I would hope that he would begin to take it off. And I think those people who are vaccinated, the more they begin to do that, the more people are going to get vaccinated and the more, you know, we're going to move forward off of all this thing. All right. Well, on that note, let's now turn to the grade book. And of course, we all know about the calendar of major national holidays, but as I'm sure you're well aware, Dave, April is a big month for regional holidays. Uh, if you live in Massachusetts or Maine, uh, you just celebrated Patriots Day, commemorating the anniversary of the battles of Lexington and Concord. And of course, in Texas, earlier this week was San Jacinto Day, remembering the battle that secured Texan independence. The week before this, we had Emancipation Day in Washington, D.C., which is on the anniversary of the day when President Lincoln signed the bill ending slavery in Washington, D.C. And then next week, on the other side, of that story. We have Confederate Memorial Day being celebrated in Alabama and Mississippi on the anniversary of the surrender of the last Confederate army. So a lot of these individual holidays, uh, state by state, region by region. So with all that in mind, what we're going to do is, is grade a few of these holidays in terms of some of the traditions that go along with them. All right. So I'm going to give you three of these holidays and you tell me what you think you would grade them as, as a tradition you'd like to get involved in celebrating. All right, so let's, let's start with Patriots Day. We, we both lived in New England for many, many years. And as you know, the, the usual celebration includes the only morning baseball game of the year. Red Sox always play an 11 a.m. baseball game against some unfortunate opponent who's not probably ready to wake up quite that early. And that's, of course, time to coincide with the running of the Boston Marathon. Now, this year, the marathon's been postponed to the fall, but uh, you still have the base, baseball game. 
And the Red Sox did their part, scored six runs in the first inning against that groggy pitcher and went on to win 11 to four. So what do you think about Patriots Day and, and Boston traditions surrounding that? I'd give it an A. Many great memories being a, a grad student in Boston. Around April 19th is when you begin to have your first 50-degree day in New England, which is always yep. kind of one of the best things. You put your shorts on for the first time, and knowing the Red Sox will be at Fenway and that there's a marathon to be had, it's it's a really neat kind of marking of, of the three or four months where the weather is – or five months where the weather is good in New England. So A for Patriots Day. Yeah, I lived – more or less under the famous Sitco sign for two years right there um, near Commonwealth Avenue, which is right at mile 25 of the marathon. And so you go out there and you see everyone go by. And at that point, the crowds are getting pretty big. And meanwhile, you know, almost simultaneous with that, you know, the, the baseball game's getting going. So yeah, it's a fun day, fun celebration. Definitely an A in my book. Not to mention the fact that it goes back to Lexington and Concord, the shot fired around the world. It's, it's good that we remember that um, so many years later. Next one, not one I've ever been a part of, but certainly well-known around the country, Mardi Gras, uh, official holiday in Louisiana. And by the way, a couple of counties in Alabama, uh, the day before Ash Wednesday, kind of a last hurrah before the beginning of Lent. Next year, celebrated on March 1st. Uh, you know about the parades and the parties. How would you grade that one, Dave? I'd give it a B. I, I wish it was an A because I, I love parties. My wife and I love to host. I think we've tried to have Mardi Gras parties. It's just Tuesday is a really difficult day <laughs> to have, you know, a great party, you know, because, and, and, you know, Mardi Gras, you know, it's, you're not going halfway, you're going all the way. So Wednesday morning comes quickly. So I, I'm going to give a Mardi Gras a B on that front. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always teaching on Tuesdays and meetings on Tuesdays. So it's not, not, not the night you're thinking about having a big party. Yeah, it's all, uh, I, I just don't quite connect with it. I mean, I get, I get the, the idea of, of, of celebration and, and, you know, entering into Lent and one last hurrah and all of that. But when I see the pictures of it, I never think, boy, I wish I were there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a, a, a C. No, like, no beads for you. <laughs> no, not this time around. No beads and no bees. Last up, we've got Arbor Day. Now, I know you, everyone jokes about Arbor Day growing up. You know, once you hear about it, you think, oh, that's, that's kind of quaint. But there's actually a state that celebrates it with, as a holiday, uh, namely Nebraska. The last Friday in April in Nebraska is a state holiday to planting trees, which, I mean, it makes sense probably in, in Nebraska because they could use some trees. But, but what do you make of Arbor Day, Dave? Any, any temptation as you're uh, you know, nearby in, in Texas shooting up to Nebraska and, and joining in the festivities? I don't see that happening. I love, I love planting trees. That, I think that's a cool thing. Uh, I, I, so I got to get a bit of B just, just a planting a tree is a good thing. Uh, a is, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit too far out of the reach, but a, a <laughs> solid B for Arbor day. Probably depends on the kind of tree you're planting too, because you know, it can, that can pay off for you down the road. You know, you get some nice fruit or something like that. And that can become part of the celebration in future years. I, I think, you know, I appreciate those Nebraskans doing their part and trying to, uh, you know, keep the state green uh, and, and under, under challenging circumstances. So I'll, I'll give it a B plus. All right. Well, that brings us to the crystal ball. Dave, your uh, English heritage came through last week for you. You correctly picked both of the FA Cup semifinals, Chelsea over Manchester City in the upset and Leicester City uh, doing a, a pretty good job on, on Southampton. Two for two for you. That makes you 21 and 13 on this season. I think you're pretty guaranteed of at least a 500 finish. 
over those next couple of weeks. Me, on the other hand, not so good. Uh, I was 0 for 2, took the other side on both those matches, and now I'm 14 and 20. So it's going to take a real scramble here to try to get back to some kind of respectable standing. But there's hope because my fall success was football success. And so we're going back to football. We've got the NFL draft coming up this week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, and you might recall earlier in the year, we made a bunch of predictions about who, which quarterbacks would be traded before the draft. I'm not sure that's going to look too good when we make a final accounting of that next week, but we're going to stick with the quarterbacks theme. And we know there's five quarterbacks that everyone expects to be drafted in the first round. So my, my question for you, Dave, which team will take each of them? I right, know I'm going to start with the easy ones. Uh, the first two are probably gimmies. Pad that record a little bit. Trevor Lawrence, where's Trevor Lawrence going? Jaguars, pick number one. Okay, I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. He's already donating to Jacksonville area charities. So I think we're not going to be in a situation where he's going to try to shoot his way out of town, force a trade or something of that sort. Sounds like he's accepting the reality that he will be a Jacksonville Jaguar and all the, the rights and privileges that come with that. Second, probably equally easy, at least if all the prognostications are correct, Zach Wilson. New York Jets, pick number two. Okay, again, yeah, seems to be no real question there. If they, if they do something other than that, I think we'll all be shocked. That's easy. So now it gets hard. Number three, how about Mac Jones? Where is Mac Jones, Alabama quarterback, going to go? I think that Mac Jones is going to slide. I think he's going to slide all the way down to the Steelers. Wow. Who are looking for a replacement uh, for – uh, their quarterback who has probably one year left in him, Big Ben, and they may trade up a couple picks uh, to, to get Mac Jones, but I say Mac Jones goes to the Steelers. All right. Well, I want to predict a trade as well, but I think it's going to be your Patriots, Dave, that are going to take Mac Jones. There's been enough rumblings about that. I know it's not Belichick's normal habit to trade up in the first round or for that matter to draft quarterbacks in the first round, but I think that might still happen. So I'm going to take Mac Jones to the Patriots. I think they're going to take an SEC quarterback, but I don't think it's going to be Mac Jones. My pick is Kyle Trask in the third or fourth round. Remember that. All right. All right. Number four, we've got Justin Fields. Where is Justin Fields going to land, Dave? I think he's going to go third to the 49ers. I think there was some talk about him sliding, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think he is like the first two quarterbacks, a a great talent. And there's no way that the 49ers traded three first round picks just to get someone average. I think they're trying to get a superstar. He may just be that. So he goes to the 49ers. They definitely traded up to get a quarterback. There's no doubt about that. And there's been a lot of speculation is, is Mac Jones their guy or is it fields? Uh, Maybe Trey Lance. I agree with you, though. I think it's going to be Fields. I think the 49ers take him and uh, Kyle Shanahan and Justin Fields could be a, a great combination for many years to come. All right, lastly, just mentioned him, Trey Lance. Where is Lance going to land? I think the Broncos trade with the Falcons to the number four pick, and they pick Trey Lance, so four quarterbacks, the first four picks. Wouldn't surprise me. Certainly the Broncos need a quarterback. Um, I think the Falcons are going to stay on four and, and take Lance at four. They've got Matt Ryan. He's probably got another good year or two in him. They've got a couple of great weapons in Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones. Be a great situation to come into for Lance, somebody who definitely needs some time probably um, acclimating himself to the NFL and and just sort of building 
on a relatively brief college career. So I think it'd be a great situation for him, great place for him to land. I'm sure he'd, he'd love to be there. And I think that might be a good fit for the Falcons. We'll be watching Thursday night for sure. In the meantime, look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And you can reach us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today and contact us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Take care. Have a good week.